today we start our series on spiritual warfare. Um, don't be afraid if you have kids in here. I would never do anything to intentionally frighten children uh, or frighten people. I don't work from that kind of manipulation. Um, the only warning is that uh, we will simply be saying what the Bible says, and some of what the Bible says is frightening, and legitimately so, not to children uh, only, but to adults. So um, let me tell you where we're going with this. This is four months of spiritual warfare, and the first month is war college. We are going to be talking about what it takes to fight the fight, how to fight the fight. And I will not be only preaching, only be preaching on the weekends, but I will be preaching uh, also uh, or lecturing on Wednesdays. Then in June, we're going to be talking about cultural strongholds, that, those ways in which our culture tears us away from God and gives us false values and how to fight those. Then in July, we're going to be talking about interpersonal relationships and how Satan sabotages our relationships with one another. And then in August, we're going to be talking about how Satan attacks us personally and what to do about that. Before we begin this morning, would you pray with me? Lord, we know from experience all of the technical things that are happening this morning uh, have to be an interruption on our concentration coming from the other side. Uh, we've never had this much go wrong. And we know that we are touching very touchy territory. And we're glad of it. We say to you, Satan, you have no place here. This is not your house. This is God's house. You get out. Your people... God will hear this morning what you say in your scripture. If you will bring us your Holy Spirit and reveal to us personally what you would have us understand, go way beyond what I speak into what you would have us all hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you go to warfare... One of the first things that's important to do is to decide what is the objective of the enemy. What would he want? What is he trying to win? That, very simply put, is to get you to live in hell with him, with Satan and his demons. Now, if he can't accomplish that eternally, he will accomplish as much of that as he possibly can in this world. And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about hell. This Sunday, we're going to talk about eternal punishment and what the Scripture says. Now, let me begin this by saying there are five reasons that I've discovered that people don't believe in the reality of hell. And let me just give them to you one by one. The first reason people don't believe in the reality of hell cuts right to the quick. I mean, we get right to the, get right to the nebulous of it here, or the, the uh, nucleus of it. Um, People don't believe in hell for a very selfish reason, because they don't want anything to interrupt their sinning or to cast a light that they may have to pay certain consequences later for it. And so therefore, we are very self-indulgent and we say, I will not believe in hell because I don't want to face the possibility of a future suffering. It's just that simple. I have a gay friend who has given his life to the Lord and is, very, is trying very hard to live for Jesus Christ. He has another gay friend who has not given his life to the Lord. 
He's into crystals and new age and all this stuff, you know, all this feel-good stuff, all this power stuff. And he gave this guy a lecture the other day on how there wasn't any hell and why there couldn't be a hell. Why do you think he was giving him that lecture? So he could go on sinning and live the style of life that he wanted to live for the same reason that you or I would like to give it. Because we also are sinners and we don't want anything to put a damper on the enjoyment of our own sin. Let's be plain about it. So there's a very selfish reason why we would not believe in the reality of hell. There's also an intellectual reason why we would not believe in the reality of hell. Since the age of reason, um, we have come in this culture and in Western civilization to believe that the only reality is that reality which can be proven or disproven by either our experience or in a laboratory. We have connected with reality with what we have termed facts. And if we don't know them as facts, or as if other people don't know them as facts, then we aren't going to believe it until we see it. See? Well, there's two things that you have to be careful of here. First of all, I heard a cute story that day about this guy said, you know, if I was a daddy fish, what I would say to my son who was also a fish? I'd take him over and I'd be swimming around with him. I'd say, son, I want to tell you something. Anytime you're swimming along and you run into a big wad of worm, all wadded scrunched up together, watch out. Because there's a hook in the middle of it. Well, I'd like to say the same thing to you, church. Anytime you're going along and you see a whole bunch of facts all wadded up together, and what it really looks like is all that exists in this world are facts, watch out, because there's a hook in the middle of it. That isn't all that exists in this world. You operate much of your lives out of intuition. You operate much of your lives out of common sense that may not have a great deal of facts to back it up, but you know it's true, don't you? Well, there is more truth than can be found in a laboratory. The second thing that gives me problems with that particular denial of the reality of hell is that, clinically speaking, there is evidence that there is hell. Those people that you hear that are revived from near-death experiences, in most books, all of the reports have been positive, haven't they? And they have given us the illusion that there must not be a hell because these people who die and come back say there's this great light on the other side. Well, if it were just a great light and a warm feeling, let me tell you that Satan can do that very well. The Bible says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And there's all kinds of warm feelings. So therefore, if there's not immediate judgment, that could be heaven, could be hell. You can't tell. But there have been books that have been written or reports that have been written. Here's one of the books. This is Dr. Maurice Rawlings called Beyond Death's Door. This was an emergency room uh, cardiologist. And he revived patients who had died and had an experience of hell. He said, I'll never forget, the first one he did was this mailman who had come in, heart failure, he began pounding on the chest. This guy began to come back. His, he was absolutely terrified when he woke up. And he was crying, don't let them have me. Don't let them get me. Please don't let them get me. And his heart failed again. And the guy brought him back, pounding on his chest. 
And he woke up this time and said, don't quit pounding, keep pounding. And he said, the, the weird thing about this was that it's just the opposite of what most people say when you bring them back. Hey, you're hurting, cut that out. This guy said, keep pounding, bring me back. And finally he said, please, you've got to pray for me that I won't go to hell. They've almost got me, please pray. Well, now, by this time, this doctor, who's not a believer at this time, starts to, starts to feel the, ne- the hair go up on the back of his neck. Now, if you know anything about spiritual warfare, you know one of the things that you listen to is the hair on the back of your neck. You know that. He is terrified by this other man's terror, and he doesn't know any prayer to pray, so he just says, well, Jesus, don't let this man go to hell. That's all he knows how to pray. Then they sedate the man. When his heart finally stabilizes, he goes back a day later. He says, so tell me what it was like. What what was like? Hell. What do you mean? He said the patients that he has revived from near-death experiences, from his experience, there have been almost as many patients who have experienced hell as experienced that warm, fuzzy light. But the ones who have experienced hell are so terrified that they have repressed the memory they cannot remember it. Now, finally, they did. This man did come back with the memory of it. And he lives in Atlanta today. Uh, as a matter of fact, Mark... White called up the doctor that wrote this book, and the doctor gave him this mailman's uh, telephone number to call up. But what I want to say to you is, if you're going to submit clinical evidence in your worldview, submit all the clinical evidence, and you will find as much clinical evidence for heaven as you found for hell. I mean, for, for hell as you found for heaven. Okay, let's go on to the next one. I don't want to spend all of my time on these reasons. The next one is an emotional reason. We just don't flat, don't want to admit to ourselves emotionally that anybody can suffer that much. Because that's not part of a feel-good world. But the fact is that your emotions are no way to judge the reality of the situation. Have any of you ever had emotions that have not been accurate? (laughs) I mean, you get all upset about something, or you don't get upset about something, and there is something catastrophic out there. You understand, please, that the way to construct a real world view is not emotionally. That way, you will know... Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to rush through this because I, I want to go on. There's a theological reason. The fourth, fourth one is a theological reason. That is, we theologize from the evidence that we have in Scripture, some of the evidence we have in Scripture, that God couldn't be like this, that God couldn't possibly let anybody suffer for their sins for an eternity. We say, what sin could be that big? Well, I could reason through this with you theologically. Uh, let, me, let me do just a second of that. Let me give you a taste for what that's like and, and justify, even if you're just talking legalistically, how a sin could be that big. You know that when you sin against something or someone, the, sin, the, pay, the consequence and the payment for the sin escalates with, the person whom you have offended or whom you have hurt and with the frequency of that hurt, right? I mean, if you go out with a hammer and you hit your neighbor's post, you're probably not going to get in a lot of trouble with that. You hit your neighbor's dog and you may be getting in some trouble. You hit your neighbor's wife and you get in real trouble for that. See how that escalates? Now, if you do it once, you may not get in trouble. You do it repeatedly, you're going to, you're going to get in, especially if it's his wife. See? So it escalates. 
with the offense. Do you understand that the offense against Almighty God, the King of the universe, would be the highest payment of all? And the number of times would certainly... Well, let me tell you. Well, anyhow, uh, I'm getting away from my track here. I do this quite often. There's a theological... There's a theological... Well, we couldn't... God wouldn't punish someone forever. And so there is a doctrine called the doctrine of annihilation. Now, this is believed by some cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's believed by some Christian denominations, like the Seventh-day Adventists. It's believed by some legitimate theologians, like John R. Stott. And it says this, that somewhere out there, that, that, that there is no punishment, you just simply die. The wages of sin, it uses scriptures like the wages of sin is death. And they say, well, it really means death. And so, for the wicked, they simply sleep in their death, and that's that. I wish I could believe that. I mean, with all my heart, I wish I could believe that. But you've got to do tremendous acrobatics with the scriptures in order to come to that conclusion. And I'll show you some scriptures in just a minute uh, that just read as they are in no way gives legitimacy to the doctrine of annihilation. And the fifth reason is a spiritual reason. The Bible says very clearly that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and rulers who are trying to keep us from spiritual truth. Let me give you the consequences of a wrestling match in the Roman Empire when that scripture in Ephesians was written. They had different kinds of wrestling matches, but one of the wrestling matches they had were a guy going with a guy, and it wasn't going for a pin like it is these days. These men would wrestle until one of them literally could not get up off the ground. And the victor who could get up off the ground would walk over to the side of the court and pick up a sword and come back and step on the neck of his victim and flick out his eyes with that sword. I'm sorry, that's, that's graphic. Could I submit to you that Satan does that same thing to us spiritually? When we lose a spiritual wrestling match, he is trying to blind us. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, very simply, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light. So therefore, one of the reasons people don't believe in hell is because they've been blinded spiritually. They've lost the wrestling match with the powers. And they have been blinded spiritually. Now, thankfully, that is not a permanent blindness. We can get back our spiritual sight whenever we want, whenever we turn to God, whenever we say, Lord, let me see. I want to see spiritual things. But there is a spiritual reason why people don't believe in hell. Now, let me ask you this. If there are all these reasons why people don't believe in hell, why people don't want to believe in hell, why is it that even in a nation like the United States, as secular and as worldly as you can possibly get, I think, does 60% of the people still believe in hell? Why is it that with our greatest literature, greatest philosophical literature, literature there is woven through that literature, if you have an eye to see, the wrestling with the doctrine of hell. Do you know that the most famous Shakespearean quote that he put into the mouth of Hamlet 
is about wrestling with the doctrine of hell? Let me me do just a piece of that for you because I want you to see the implicit theology that you probably missed before. Here is a Dane melancholy wanting to sign off from the world. He is tired of the struggle. He is depressed. And he's wondering if he can commit suicide and get away with it. And so with his dagger, he says to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep no more and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that human flesh is heir to to the consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that dream of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must surely give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the the laws delay, the insolence of office, the scorn that patient merit from unworthy takes, if he could his own quietness make with bare dagger? Who would bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life. Now listen to this. But that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to those we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. You know what he's doing? He's fearing hell. Wow. No. He's fearing hell. What is there in great literature that we miss? There is an awareness that all of us have that hell is real. Now, let me share with you what Scripture says about hell. First of all, I would love to complete the characterization that all of us have of God. If you would turn to Nahum, in the first chapter, there are many such characterizations that we will not admit to ourselves because we love the passage that says God is love, and then we translate it, God is only love. Do you know that the same Bible that tells us God is love also says... A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You know what we've done? We have so confined what we listen to out of the Bible to what we want to hear. We have not had a complete image 
of who God is. God is loving. But the Bible also says that he is just and that he is righteous and that he is holy and that he is wrathful and that he does not let offenses go unpunished. You say, does that mean that we really have a cruel God? No. Any God who would die on the cross for you cannot be called cruel. Any God who would do everything in his power, everything with his spirit, to get us to live in heaven with him, no one has to go to hell. Hell wasn't even prepared for us. It was prepared for Satan and his demons. It wasn't even prepared for us. No one has to go there. But to say that God cannot send anyone there is simply not true. Secondly, if you will look at the passages, just a few passages with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Let me show you the character of what hell is like. Chapter 8, verse 12. Let me start with verse 11. I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't sound like annihilation, does it? It sounds like continual um, isolation, continual regret. Let me read with you chapter 16 of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. This is an account of Lazarus and a rich man. Some would say it is a parable. I do not believe it is a parable. Because in none of Jesus' parables does he ever give a name to anybody. I think this is an actual account. Starting with verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Boy, this guy's heart must have been rock hard. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, it came about that when the poor man died, he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, Hades is different from hell, it's different from Gehenna, I am going to, uh, I think, because people have asked me about it, to give a lecture on a Wednesday night in June about the afterlife and about what it is like after we die and what are the different worlds that are denoted in Scripture and so on and so forth. But anyhow, it says that uh, in Hades, this is the rich man, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I want you to know these are not just disembodied spirits. These are recognizable people recognizable personalities. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, this is a Jew, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us 
and you, there is a great chasm fixed. And the sense here in Greek is that it is immovable. It will always be there. There is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So what we see again, the character of hell, is one of separation and great regret and permanent confinement. Okay, a couple more. In Matthew chapter 25, let's just read it straight out of Scripture. Verse 41. This is the final judgment. This is Jesus talking. It's been Jesus talking these scriptures. These are the words coming out of the Lord's mouth. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. I'm going to talk about that fire in just a minute. Which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels after their rebellion. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, I would ask you, who want to believe in the doctrine of annihilation, to justify that scripture. I have heard some people say, well, it says to go away into eternal punishment, and eternal punishment is not eternal punishing. There is a place of eternal punishment, but that doesn't mean that you stay there forever and so on and so forth. Wait a minute. Look honestly at that scripture. There are parallel scriptures. They are the same Greek words. If you do that, you have to go to the eternal life part and you say, well, that's not really eternal life. It's eternal lifeing. You know? It doesn't mix. It doesn't go. Eternal punishment says eternal punishment. That's what it is. Okay. And then one more. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And before I go, I go on, let me, let me tell you, for those of you who say, where in the universe could there even be a place like this? You literalists? It's easy for me to say. But he gave me a book that, uh, that had a reference from C.T. Schwarz, who, who, who was a physicist. Uh, with NYU, New York University. Fifty years ago, they discovered a phenomena in the universe called dwarf or white midget stars. These are constellations that are about 5,000 times smaller or more compact than what a normal star would be. Their imprisonment their confinement escalates the temperature of these constellations to about 90 or 30, I'm sorry, 30 million degrees Fahrenheit. So hot are they that they are made entirely up of gases, but the gases are so hot they have turned to liquid form. They are literally a lake of fire. And there is no chance, as far as the physicists can say, can tell, that they will ever burn out or that anything will cool them off because everything that comes into their orbit is drawn into them, disassembled physically, literally. The electrons are, 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 are uh, uh, 
stripped away from the nucleus, and they become a part of that lake of fire. So yes, there are in this universe literal lakes of fire. Okay. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't see any doctrine of annihilation here. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now let me just talk a few more minutes. Why do I tell you this? To scare you? Let me say to those of you who have already given their life to Jesus Christ and are sincerely living in him, you have absolutely no fear. The fact is, no, the reason God put all of this in here is so that we wouldn't have to be afraid. Now, there are legitimate fears in this life, and to have a full world picture, we have to face them. I know that everybody loves to feel good about church. I know that. I like it too. I like positive stuff. I'm a possibility thinker. I am. I love all that up stuff. And when I come, I love to hear the up music. That's my favorite kind. I've, I've, from the time I can remember, I've always been a person of encouragement and so on and so forth. I love that stuff. And I'll always be that kind of person. But I would say to you, if that's all of the gospel that you can hear, because you need to hear only things that are positive and only things that are uplifting, then I would say to you that what you have is not working for you because it has not made you strong enough yet to face reality as it really is, all of reality as it really is. There are legitimate things to fear. What parent here has not taught their kid to be afraid of playing in the street? Why? So that they can grow up and be afraid of driving? Afraid of the highways? Of course not. You don't want them to be afraid of highways. You want them to stay out of the street. And fear is the appropriate thing. Who of, there, who of us is there that is absolutely not mindful of gravity? Well, is it because we want to live in fear of gravity? No, it's because you want to respect what gravity can do. And so, therefore, you don't want to even question its uh, consequences if you tempt it. There is a legitimate kind of fear to have for those who have not yet come to the side of love. I hope that we are not so sick of hearing about the crime of this nation that we just won't think about it anymore. You know? I don't want to think about that. That's too negative. It's too frustrating. Well, we can't live in fear of crime, but if you don't take note of it in your daily life, they're going to eat your lunch. You understand? It is wise to be mindful of that which could harm us. Those of you who go back and forth with your own sexuality... I'm glad about this fear of sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, I think the fear is wise to have. For those of you who have not yet come to the place where you have the spiritual power to really live in uh, victory with Christ, if all you have that's keeping you from giving in to your own lust is fear, then I say, great, go with it. Be afraid. 
If all we have to get us to God at the first point is fear, then it's legitimate. If that's all we have, no, it's not the best. No, it's not where we stay. No, it's not where we go. We don't want to live our lives in fear, and you should never have to live your life in fear. But if you haven't got the good sense to go to God because you love Him and because He loves you, then go to Him because if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. It's just that plain. And that's a good enough reason. Now let me tell you one more thing. And if you've missed all of it, don't miss this. This is the reason why I say this. It is important. I'll let them get on out because I want you to be able to concentrate. It is important in spiritual warfare. The first principle in spiritual warfare is that you say to yourself, if for no other reason, even if what is in Scripture does not match my own opinion, I'm going to believe it because God said it. It is important. Now look, turn to Matthew chapter 10. This is the text, and this is what I want you to hear. I always want us to think. And I never want us just to leave the Bible to do our thinking for us because God gave us the Bible to pour over and to meditate on and to think about. But do you realize what it means when you read something out of the Bible and you say, no, I don't believe that? Look at what it says. This is Jesus talking. A disciple is not above his teacher. This is verse 24, chapter 10, Matthew. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and a slave as his master. Now skip down to verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him. He's talking about God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Let me tell you what you do when you look at something in the Bible and don't believe it. And, and please don't think that if you don't believe in hell, you're automatically going there. I'm not talking about a doctrine here. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. There's nothing you have to do to escape hell but have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? There are not 18 things you've got to believe in. So therefore... Please don't think I'm trying to preach a doctrine. I'm preaching Christ. This is what Christ said. Do you understand that Christ believed there was a hell? Do you understand that Christ talked about hell? Christ talked about hell more than he talked about heaven, if you read Scripture. Why? Because he wanted us to think about it more? No, because he wanted us to avoid it. But when you say, even though Jesus said it, I'm not going to believe it, what you're, what you're doing? You're putting the disciple above the teacher, aren't you? You're putting the slave above his master. Don't do it. You have just replaced the Son of God with somebody woefully inadequate. And that's you. If Jesus said it, that's it. And if you don't believe that, then you might as well never enter into spiritual warfare because if you're going to go on your own opinions, you might as well just draw concentric circles on yourself and say, Satan, come ahead. I mean, you're a walking target. What God said, he means. 
What God said, he knows. And whether or not we think we know more about it than God does, pray with me. God, we preach not fear, but the power of Christ. We preach not intimidation, but the security of the love that you have for us. It was grace that taught our hearts to fear, and grace our fears relieved. Lord, if there be people this morning here that need to fear you because they couldn't love you, because they love their sin more, then let them fear you. And let them come running to you because they are afraid. It is appropriate. If there are those who would today commit their life to you out of fear of hell, let them do that because hell is real. And for the rest of us, Lord, who know that we are not going to go to hell because we have believed in your Son, continue to let us know that even though we won't end up there, if we are targets of Satan, we can live there for as long as we live in this life. We can have a hell in this world. Therefore, we need to rest in your arms and to come running to you because you are the source of our love and strength and victory. Thank you that we neither need to live in hell after we die nor before. In Jesus' name, amen.